When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. New developments in the legal drama surrounding former President Donald Trump. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts. Lots of news of all kinds going on right now. And the latest updates on the 2024 election. The rematch is on. It's Trump-Biden part two. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with the gathering storm in this country. Anti-small-D Democratic forces, fueled by the big lie and enabled by today's Republican Party, are gaining ground and at an alarming pace. From the lowest-level state offices to the halls of the United States Senate, Republicans have abandoned whatever principles they once claimed to have and have entirely capitulated to Donald Trump and his delusions of a stolen election. That's it. That's the party now. And Trump is marshalling those forces to try and seize power in 2024, whether you, the voters, elect him or not. It is clear that this is a five alarm fire. It has been for months. And those who choose to ignore it are putting this country in jeopardy. There just is no nicer way to put it. Just yesterday, the second highest ranking Republican in the House of Representatives refused three times to acknowledge the simple and undeniable fact that Joe Biden won the election. Here is House Minority Whip. Steve Scalise of Louisiana. Do you think the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump? Well, Chris, I've been very clear from the beginning. If you look at a number of states, they didn't follow their state passed laws that governed the election for president. So you think the election was stolen? What I said is there are states that didn't follow their legislatively set rules. But last time, I promise, do you think the election was stolen or not? It's not just irregular. It's states that did not follow the laws set, which the Constitution says they're supposed to follow. Now, I should remind you that that guy is in leadership in the first place, despite having once compared himself favorably to David Duke, quote, without the baggage. So Republicanism has been going in the wrong direction, the Trumpy direction, for a minute. But Scalise is in leadership. Meaning it's, it's not just the Looney Tunes of the House Sedition Caucus who are drinking Trump's Kool-Aid. Whatever you think of Scalise, he ostensibly should know better. And yet there he is, gulp, gulp, gulping that Kool-Aid down. Even old-timey Republicans have fallen in line, like Senator Chuck Grassley, who campaigned with Trump this weekend in Iowa at a rally where attendees repeatedly chanted the big lie that Trump supposedly won. As Steve Bennett writes for MSNBC, the line between the GOP fringe on Capitol Hill and the GOP leadership has been blurred to the point where it hardly exists at all. The big lies become so deeply entrenched in Republican orthodoxy, they are now poised to steal elections that they don't win. And that has prompted a host of warnings from figures across the spectrum, from neoconservative scholar Robert Kagan to libertarian comedian Bill Maher to Chris Krebs, the former director of cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security. He warned yesterday that our democracy is in a death spiral. What we're seeing, as as, uh, Congressman Schiff mentioned, is this constant erosion of confidence in the uh, the electoral system. And it is ultimately anti-democratic. And we're, we're frankly in a death spiral, as I see it. And, you know, two years, four years at the ballot box isn't good enough. And there have to be other accountability measures for those that are going to continue to proliferate uh, these lies. That's what makes the committee investigating January 6th so critical. And that's why the question of whether Attorney General Merrick Garland will actually enforce the subpoenas against Trump's former aides and allies who are trying to defy that committee is a life or death question for our democracy. 
Joining me now is John Brennan, former CIA director, and Olivia Troy, former senior aide on the White House Coronavirus Task Force and director of the Republican Accountability Project. Um, director Brennan, I, I, I suffer from insomnia. Uh, and, and one of the things that has made it worse is that I cannot stop thinking about this. You know, I feel like, you know, that people are sort of going about their lives and not facing the fact that our democracy really is falling into a, a deep sinkhole. And I, and I don't know if you, having professionally had to look at countries that were spiraling out of democracy into autocracy, if you see the if you see us lining up the way that those countries lined up on their way down. Well, I do, Joy. And over the last several years, I think we have all exhausted all the words and phrases in the English language to describe the moral bankruptcy of the leading members of the Republican Party, including, of course, Donald Trump. And I think each day we have more evidence of that bankruptcy. And it's not just their rhetoric that we should be concerned about. I think they really are laying the groundwork for the elections in 2022 and 2024. Their whole party platform these days is based on dishonesty. They continue to try to exploit those fears and concerns of a lot of American citizens. And they're hoping that with their dishonest ways, they're going to be able to sway them with this big lie. But the fact that Steve Scalise continues to refuse to acknowledge that Joe Biden is the president of the United States, I think really does show just how much the Republican Party has devolved at this point. The leadership, and with rare exceptions, Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and a few others, all the Republicans seem to be lining up behind Donald Trump. And the fact that Senator Grassley continues to grovel basically at the feet of uh, Donald Trump because he believes that he needs that endorsement in order to win re-election. I think, again, it just shows the lengths to which these individuals are going to go. They don't care about integrity anymore. Right. I mean, Olivia Troy, um, Tom Nichols has described this as late stage Bolshevism, right, where the people who actually do know better and understand things just realize that the, the, the loonies are taken over. So you have two choices when you see, you know, the fascists take over. You either fight them or you join them. And most Republicans have decided to join. You know, I feel like the neoconservative sort of wing of the party that spent its entire kind of, you know, adult life, like looking at fixating on, on spreading democracy. They're like, oh, crap, we got to spread democracy here. Right. So they're kind of in the camp of saying, oh, I see this and they can recognize it. But the rest are just joining up. I mean, Steve Scalise, back when he was in Louisiana, the, the quote about him being, you know, David Duke without the baggage, it came because he said, wait, David Duke appeals to white voters. I like to I would like to appeal to these same white voters. So I, I think I'm going to adopt all the things about him I think are acceptable. That's what he was trying to say that, you know, they're, they're, instead of saying, no, David Duke is just absolutely wrong. We don't want anything to do with those politics. He said, this will work for me. I'll just take out the parts that are explicitly bad. Uh, let me let me play um, former. This is Fiona Hill, who was a Trump NSC official. Here's how she described it. This is exactly the thing that you think of historic in revolution, storming the Bastille and during the French Revolution, storming the Winter Palace during uh, the Russian Revolution that General Milley was alluding to. And as he was saying, we've seen many historical episodes where there is violence. People discount it. They think that this is just a passing occurrence. You know, Vice President Pence has been downplaying it, even though he would have been targeted. He was targeted. They wanted to lynch him. And then, you know, people sweeping this away, saying nothing happened here. And the next time around, you get the real thing. This was, in effect, a dress rehearsal for something that could be happening near term in 2022, 2024. I mean, do you agree with that, Livia? Because that is what Bill Maher described, that that is the future. 
Yeah, I'm incredibly concerned at all of these people who, instead of taking a stand and instead of telling the truth, which they need to, to their own supporters, because that is how we are going to survive as a democracy and as a country is in terms of coming together and actually just being honest with one another and getting back to true, I would say, governance and policy and politics on the Republican side. That is how we need to come together moving forward. And so I think they're all correct in saying this and the concern for it, because we've got all these people who, instead of taking a stand for the truth, are standing by and they're enabling what's happening here because it's a narrative of convenience for them. That is where we are. The big lie is a Republican Party's platform. There's no policies here, really, that are they're yeah. governing for. They're not really pushing anything. They're lying, and repeatedly. And it's a platform for the past. It was the big lie for 2020, but it's certainly not in the past anymore. It's the big lie in the midterm elections of what's going to happen. It's going to be the big lie going forward, and that big lie is going to be living on. And just like he said, you know, it's the, the ongoing laying of the groundwork to put forth efforts in an attempt to overturn elections in the future that aren't convenient for them. And all of these people have decided that they're okay with it because it keeps them in power in their eyes. You know, John Brennan, you know, the, the elephant in the room, I mean, Donald Trump at this point, Jonathan Carl has a book out saying that he was intrigued by the idea that something called Nest thermostats flip the vote. I mean, they're, they're willing to in, in, engage absurdities, just really wild fears, anything to say, anything except Donald Trump lost the election. And the elephant in the room is that the, the cause of the discontent on the right is that people who look like me chose Biden and got their way that people who are brown and black are a rising majority. And they, because of the numbers, you know, the 80-20 rule that all you need is 80 percent of people of color and you can actually get by with, you know, 40 percent of white voters and you can win elections that way. It's that way Democrats win. That's the fact. And they cannot stand that reality. So what they're saying to their voters, who are mainly white working class voters, is don't worry. We'll make sure those people can't vote. We'll, uh, we'll believe any theory, you know, aliens came down and made Donald Trump lose. Anything but you lost, because they don't want to ever face those voters and say to them, y'all can't always win elections. That's what this comes down to, no? And well, they know that the demographic and political trends are against them. And so they continue to try to exploit the fears of a lot of individuals in this country by overstating the concerns that a lot of people have about what's happening in this country in terms of migration, other types of economic issues, and other things. But uh, I must say that we, you know, we're no longer the world's role model for democracy, I think. Given the authoritarian really? tendencies of the Republican Party, it is quite clear that the Republicans, I think, are trying to resort to any tactic possible. And I am concerned that what we saw on January 6th could that be re replicated in the future? Are there individuals who are going to try to stoke those fears to such an extent that some people are going to try to take action into their own hands? In interviews over the weekend, I heard individuals say that they see a civil war coming because yeah. of this palpable fear that they have that they're going to again resort to any tactic whatsoever in order to hold on to what I think is their, their failing uh, ability to hold on to power. And, th and then it's a push, right? I mean, it, they're saying that they're, they're going to reinstall Donald Trump. This is what the right, uh, Olivia, is saying, is that they will reinstall Donald Trump in power by any means necessary. You, have, you had people on that mall attacking our Capitol who had military training, who were active police officers or former police officers. So it wasn't all just, you know, real estate, you know, agents with nothing better to do. Some of these people had tactical training. And I, and I think what, what, what is terrifying to me is that they have now wrapped into this 
wild orthodoxy, anti-maskism and anti-vaxxerism, which again is also, there are some people with that same training that are part of that. And so I wonder if you worry that just as a matter of homeland security, trying to deal with 2022 and 2024, whether we have any preparation whatsoever for what we're facing, because it could be what we saw on January 6th on steroids. No, that's absolutely correct. And I think that this is continuing to gain traction. These threats continue to increase or on the rise. These grievances continue to be on the rise. And these, you know, the elected leaders that are actually supporting these types of endeavors are creating this prime opportunity for violence, for political violence. And, and they're encouraging the use of violence for it to, to take a stand when they when things don't go their way. Right. I mean, they're encouraging they encouraged it on January 6th and they continue to encourage it today. And so I think we're in a very dangerous moment for our country right now that will continue going forward. And I think we should absolutely be looking at the Homeland Security Enterprise, which is why the January 6th committee's work is so critically important so that we don't repeat the same mistakes that we did in the past, so that we understand what failed that day, what led to that failure, so that going forward, we're more vigilant and that the Homeland community is more prepared at the state and local level to to prepare to deal with this and also to deal with it within their own ranks, because we know that it's there, right? These are our neighbors. These are people that we know who have fallen for this whole sham and charade and it's so dangerous because it's really hard when you have this scenario to really counter it with truth and facts. You and I, the three of us are living in the real world, right? The reality, we're looking at it from rational, rational perspectives. Because the messages that I get from all the people who love to hate me, they're looking at it from a different reality and they're watching echo chambers. They're watching leaders who are telling them these things and they're watching the narratives on right-wing pundits and these social media networks and all of this coming together. And it's just a recipe for dangerous disaster. And John Brennan, very quickly, have you ever observed a society in this state of breakdown that fixes itself without some pretty serious action? And if so, what is that action? What can be done to reverse it? Well, I think in the past, sometimes there could be a galvanizing event where it's going to unite individuals against a common threat. Unfortunately, the threats we see right now are within our borders or it's among us. And I think it's really going to be difficult over the next several years. I think we're in for, you know, several years of real difficult political waters here that really are going to really test the mettle of our democracy. And uh, this is the time, I think, for Americans to try to push past all the disinformation that's out there and try to return to the principles of this great democracy, this republic of ours. Your mouth to God's ear. Uh, uh, John Brennan, Olivia Troy. Scary is caring, we like to say on this show. Thank you guys for coming. It's scary, but we got to deal with it. Up next on The Readout. The right-wing madness in Texas. Alan West, the Trump candidate for governor of that state, goes full-on anti-vaxxer, even as he lies in a hospital bed with COVID pneumonia. Plus, the blockbuster reporting on young black children in Tennessee locked up for crimes that don't even exist. In tonight's absolute worst, one of the biggest rock stars of the 70s is now tone deaf, off key and singing a very dangerous tune. And before we go to break, I want to wish everyone a happy Indigenous Peoples Day and a happy National Coming Out Day. 
Joe Biden is the first president to officially recognize Indigenous Peoples Day. He wrote, today we recognize their resilience and strength, as well as the immeasurable positive impact that they have made on every aspect of American society. And the first openly LGBT senator, Democrat Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, tweeted, happy National Coming Out Day. Come out, speak out, and engage as if it were your right to do so, because it is. Do you? The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. If you want a taste of what the GOP has dreamt up for America, just take a look at Texas. On average, more than 270 people in Texas died from COVID every day in the last month. Women have fewer rights than men because of a draconian ban on most abortions, and it's back in effect after a federal appeals court reversed a temporary pause. And certain counties are banning books in schools because they touch on race, and that makes some white parents uncomfortable. You might be familiar with the practice. It's called censorship. And moments ago, the state's governor issued an executive order telling private businesses that they, these private businesses, may not issue vaccine mandates. Whatever happened to government staying out of the way? It should come as no surprise that most of this is brought to you by Governor Greg Abbott, a guy who's up for re-election and wants to outdo the hard right wing nuts in his party, including Alan West, former Florida congressman and permanent Tea Party troll, who is currently in a hospital with COVID pneumonia and live tweeting his disdain for vaccine mandates. Here's just a sample of what this potential governor has to say. Quote, I can attest that after this experience, I'm even more dedicated to fighting against vaccine mandates. Instead of enriching the pockets of big pharma and corrupt bureaucrats and politicians, we should be advocating the monoclonal antibody infusion therapy. As governor of Texas, I will vehemently crush, crush anyone forcing vaccine mandates on a Lone Star State. Our bodies are our last sanctuary of liberty and freedom. I will defend that for everyone. Just not for women, of course. Joining me now. Under his eye is Jason Johnson, professor of politics and journalism at Morgan State University and host of the Slate podcast, A Word with Jason Johnson and Sochi Inahosa, former communications director for the DNC and former spokesperson handling voting rights for the DOJ. And Sochi, I'm going to start with you because last I checked, monoclonal antibodies are even more expensive than all the other treatments for uh, COVID-19, meaning that Alan West is actually enriching big pharma by choosing those and also lots of big donors to the Republican Party. Your thoughts on his tweets from his COVID bedside or COVID bed? Well, this isn't a race to the right. This is a race to the bottom. And that's exactly what's happening with the gubernatorial primary in Texas right now. You have not only Alan West, who is literally hospitalized as we speak because he's not vaccinated and he had low oxygen levels. You also have another person in the primary that put out a press release today claiming victory 
removing Abbott to the right and having a ban on vaccine mandates. That's what we're talking about. You know, this race just shows how important governor's races are, and especially in the state of Texas, whether it is, you know, ensuring that people don't get vaccinated because that's what they seem that they want to do, or whether it's women's rights, um, or whether it's even keeping your electricity on, for that matter, in Mm. Texas. This is a race to the bottom, and that's exactly what this primary is. I mean, Jason, basically in Texas, the grid is private, but private businesses can't have mask vaccine mandates if they want to. And the guy who wants to replace Governor Abbott, who is already so far to the right, he's basically to the right of Attila the Hun, is the guy who, I remember him from Florida, he's the guy who mock executed an Iraqi policeman and got in trouble in the army. Uh, Here's a couple of his quotes uh, on Barack Obama, uh, on the Barack Obama White House. If you're here to stand up, get your musket, fix your bayonet and charge into the ranks. You're my brother and sister in this fight. He said that black people were better off during segregation because they had better educational opportunities um, and uh, called Islam uh, not a religion. Your thoughts? You know, look, speaking of educational opportunities, one of the other crimes that we've seen lately in the state of Texas uh, is this new book banning that they've got Mm. where they're chasing after books and they don't want kids to learn about critical race theory. That's why I have Jerry Kraft right behind me. He writes great books for kids. (laughs) And these are the kinds of things they don't want. But this is the thing. Alan West, he 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 is the zeitgeist of the Republican Party right now. They want that same kind of they they want that sort of natural, all natural flavor racism. But they want it in blackface with a 1990s uh, flat top haircut. That's what they Mm. want. And that's what they can get out of Alan West. If he can actually get out of bed and hopefully realize that he could actually catch COVID again because the magical antibodies that he thinks he has now will not keep him any safer if he continues to run around and grab hand the way that he is, he will be the kind of person that many Republicans in that state want. But here's the problem. The state of Texas is not nearly as Republican as the idiots that they seem to want to have running. 95% of the growth in that state has been coming from minorities and people from other more liberal progressive places moving into the state. And at some point, the dam is going to break. and You'll start seeing politicians that reflect the people who live there and not just the moneyed interests who are paying their way. You know, and so Jason makes a really good point is that one of the things Republicans are doing is they're trying to find as many black and brown and Asian American people who spout those same ideologies as possible in running them. Right. They've done that in Georgia. Uh, Alan West is sort of the idea of that in Texas and just saying, we'll just dress this up uh, in sort of a black person. And then say, see, we're not we're not racist. Look at us. We got Alan West. But Alan West is the guy who says segregation was a better time for black people. Right. So it's like ironic black people. Uh, But but that is their strategy. And I wonder if in a part that is sort of showing itself to be terrified of learning about Dr. King because it might make white um, white students feel uncomfortable to talk about racism, whether or not he might actually be a threat to Abbott. That maybe, you know, far right Democrats are saying, you know what, I prefer my racist ideas in the form of an Alan West. Well, Abbott is feeling the threat right now. I think that you're having him take some pretty hard right stances. You actually have him looking into the last election because he knows that he can't afford Donald Trump out there opposing him, right? And so he is scared about the right. Um, at the same time, he's also scared about black and brown people voting. Yes, they're, they, the party in Texas might lift up a black candidate where they can. But if they weren't scared about black and brown people voting in Texas, then they wouldn't have passed the voter suppression law to make it harder. So yes, that's and actually in the legislature right now, they're passing redistricting maps to figure out how do we set silence black and brown people. That's exactly what's happening right now. So if you want to talk about a party that is um, tries to 
prop up their black candidates, I'd also point you to a party that is trying to silence them. Well, and so the thing is, Jason, right, that the gerrymandering won't really do anything about a statewide race, right? They're going to try to mash and squash all the votes from Harris County, where Houston is, because that's where, you know, a lot of the black and brown vote. They're going to do everything they can to try to squash the non-white vote. But I wonder if in the end, this game between turning the state into the handmaid's tale state, going after black and brown voters with such aggression, the lieutenant governor blaming black people for the COVID, uh, for, for COVID outbreaks, just all that they've done, if the accumulation of it winds up biting them in the butt, especially if they wind up with Alan West on the ticket instead of um, the current governor. Well, here's also the irony of this, Joy, for all of the sort of uh, lack of election integrity and concerns that Texas politicians have. If I was Alan West, I wouldn't trust that the current system is actually going to be a fair primary. Why isn't he worried about that? Why isn't he worried that Abbott will cheat and somehow manipulate the vote? That's that's what see if there was any integrity to this nonsense, if it wasn't just this sort of Scooby Doo chase to find some way to suppress black voters, they would be questioning the system of their own primaries. But they're not trying to do that. I don't know, Joy, honestly, if I think this is going to end up biting the Republican Party in the butt, because ultimately all of this is going to depend on what happens in Washington, D.C., the place that all the Democrats in that state had to flee to. If Washington, right. D.C. and Joe Biden and the Democratic Party doesn't do anything about voting rights, they won't get no one in Texas will face any consequences for their voter suppression. You know, and, and that is a very good point. You know, let me just look at the past here, because so so, you know. The Castro brothers said to me, like in 2012, that eventually this state is going to be a purple state. It's, it's moving in that direction demographically. But to, to the point Jason just made, Sochi, Democrats in D.C. have a lot to do with whether or not that vote can be galvanized. Maria, uh, Teresa Kumar talks about this all the time. There needs to be issues that are palatable. Immigration, they haven't been able to get through. Um, voting rights, they haven't been able to get through. Uh, police reform, they haven't been able to get through. Democrats are stalled pretty much in D.C. And yet, look at this state. Ted Cruz only beat Beto O'Rourke by, like, less than two points last time when he ran. Um, the current governor, Abbott, did a lot better against Lupe Valdez, but he will not be running against a woman this time. So I wonder if Texas Democrats are frustrated that the D.C. situation is not helping them to motivate more voters to try to overcome these voter suppressive tactics. Yeah, I think that Texas Democrats are frustrated and they're not just frustrated because of the motivation, because there are a lot of things that motivate voters. And one of them is getting over this pandemic, the economy and healthcare, and all the issues that we know um, are front and center nationally are also front and center in Texas. But I think they're frustrated more because they're just asking for pro basic protection in voting rights. If Republicans try to game the system time and time again, it will be harder for a Democrat to win in Texas. And they know they're worried about the numbers between Beth O'Rourke and Ted Cruz. And guess what? They're even more worried about Beth O'Rourke potentially running against Greg Abbott right now. So they will do everything they can in order to silence voters in the midterm election and in the presidential election because they're worried that it's slipping out of their hands. And yes, Democrats are frustrated, but I think they're frustrated with the lack of progress on voting rights, which are basic protections for people in Texas. Yeah. Yeah, that and, and, and women's rights. I mean, Texas is basically now the sort of microcosm for all bad things uh, that Republicans are trying to do. Let's see how it goes next year. Uh, Sochi Inahosa, Jason Johnson, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, the fate of the Democratic Party, as we were just discussing, and the country is at stake. Many voters are worried that the Democrats they elected into office are not following through on what they campaigned on. And it could cost them in 2022. We have two experts to break it all down next.
Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. And so we're just sick of it, you know, and we're not going to we're not going to take it anymore. I see a civil war coming. I do. I see civil war coming. A glimpse of the cacistocracy in waiting at a rally for the disgraced twice impeached former president over the weekend. Now, if that's not the dimly lit future that you want for your country and you don't want to put that lady's advocates in charge for the foreseeable future, the question becomes, is the imperfect but sole pro-democracy party left, the Democratic Party, built to stop it. Because with little more than a year until the midterms, there's one thing most observers agree on. The Democrats are in trouble. But is it, as former Obama data guru David Shore argues, because of the way our politics are structured to favor white rural communities in the Senate, and Democrats are just not connecting with the voters who they need in those communities? Or... Is it, as New York Times columnist Charles Blow suggests, that the Democrats are just not getting enough done with the power they currently hold in the White House and both chambers of Congress? Because the reality is we don't have another party that's built to save our democracy. The Republicans are gone. And if Democrats don't have it in them to do it, that woman calling for civil war, she could be our future. Joining me now is Rachel Bittacoffer, political scientist and co-founder of Strike Pack and Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist. All right, you all, I'm going to read you a couple of little bits here and and ask you to tell me where you fall on which of these two people are correct. Here's what Charles Blow wrote in his New York Times column about 2022. He says Democrats need to do more. The Democrats will have no choice but to pass something, no matter the size, because the consequences of failure is suicide. Democrats must go into the midterms with something that they can call a win, with something that at least inches closer to the transformations that Biden has promised. On the other hand, you have Ezra Klein, who wrote about David Shore's thoughts and his data, which he explains, is that Democrats are on the edge of an electoral abyss. To avoid it, they need to win states that lean Republican. To do that, they need to internalize that they are not like and do not understand the voters they need to win over. I'm going to start with you, Cornell. Uh, Actually, ladies first. Ladies first. I'm going to let Rachel go first. Rachel, I'm going to have you go first. Which side do you fall on? Is it that Democrats need to find ways to appeal to people in a more sort of white working class conservative ish world or that they just need to get more stuff done? Well, I think what I would say if I was able to talk with David Shore and uh, Ezra Klein about it is to say, okay, well, then um, how did Democrats exactly win over white working class voters? If the main motivating, you know, factor other than partisanship that is motivating them is 
is basically the great replacement theory, right? It's white racial um, animus and resentment. And the political science literature on this is very, very clear. Look, it's 2016, and there's been a lot of research since to kind of suss out in controlled models what matters to voters. Is it these messages? Is it issues? Is it bread and butter? Is it economics? No, it is latent fear about sex, you know, women and minorities taking over their you know, for, for, I mean, think about it. This is a, this is a group of people who've had power in perpetuity. And now that power is not only being challenged, it is being decreased, right? So it's not like they're making, <laughs> making that part up. We celebrate that. Um, but in certain segments of the country, especially when you have advertising and messaging and, and a propaganda news network that is stoking those things, making them more salient, getting these people to focus on Dr. Seuss and not on, you know, the COVID relief money that they got. Right. So, like, you know, you can't win back white working class voters. There are tons of working class voters who are not white that we could massively improve reach outreach and messaging to. And we hit them. You know, we have to understand where, where these voters are. They're not us. They're not following the news every day. They don't follow politics. So, you know, if no one's telling them that the Republican Party is b- bad for their personal pocketbook, then they are going to continue to be under the false assumption that voting for Republican helps them. And so, so Cornell, uh, to that point, and uh, thank you. I wanted to, that, that's one of the reasons I wanted to see uh, see what Rachel had to say. Uh, have her go first. Uh, but I want to ask you this a similar question. Democrats are obsessed with the middle class. And when they say the middle class, they mean white middle class voters, right? They mean white suburban voters. They're obsessed with them. And they would how can we make them like us, right? But but at the end of the day, isn't Rachel correct that the base base of the party is also unsatisfied, but it's more because they're not getting what Democrats promised, no? Where, where do you fall on that trajectory between Shore and Charles Blow? Well, my head's about to explode about this this entire conversation because to a lot of to a certain extent, it's it's politically absurd, right? It's the, the 1990s are calling; they want their campaigns back. Um, you know, you know what what would Barack Obama? Well, we have a Barack Obama if we had listened to that sort of thinking. And the truth of the matter is, Democrats have not won sort of the working white. Uh, voters and and decades and 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 the trend line is actually moving in, in the opposite direction like we're not doing better among them where we are doing better is among white better educated white voters sort of college educated white voters and you saw from from this past election Biden was able to do what what Hillary Clinton or even Barack Obama was able to do and 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 winning um White college voters, particularly white co- white college women, that's where uh, the new majorities are, in fact, built. But to your point, there is an obsession in the Democratic establishment old cabal about you know winning their, over their aunts and uncles and not letting them go. But they got to let them go because uh, the truth of the matter is that if if you look at the majority that both. Obama won back-to-back majorities in the majority that Biden won, they look very, they don't look that dissimilar. They look like a bunch of young people, a bunch of diverse people, and better educated Americans um, standing up and showing that they're, they're in fact the majority. That's where the new majority is. But at the same time, I don't like the idea of pitting one against the other. Look, if you look at the Biden agenda, the Biden agenda overwhelmingly <laughs> helps working class white people, right? Working class um, Americans, that middle group, that middle group, of, that middle group of Americans. But to the earlier point, tr- 
tribalism is so strong right now, it is, in fact, what are they putting at their higher interests? Are they putting their, their pocketbook considerations or their transactional considerations above their higher interests, of, above the interests of sort of their tribalism? No. When have Americans ever done that? Right, they've never right, right. They've, 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 ne- they've, they've never done it. So so I, I kind of reject that idea. But I also, you know, I, to, 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 to Blow's point, Democrats do need to put up points. They do need to score points. But I will also remind you, Joy, that that in 2000, that early seat, that early part of Obama administration, we passed they passed an awful lot of legislation. They actually passed legislation that pulled America back from the brink of an economic catastrophe. Uh, and then they got their tails whipped in 2010. That's right. And they got their yeah. tails whipped in 2010, partially because, quite frankly, what we're seeing now is the base of the party is not energized. And Republicans do a very good job of energizing their base. And while Democrats are afraid to energize their base because they're afraid of this, this mythical swing voter that might be turned off if we talk to our base. Well, let me very quickly put up for everybody so you guys understand. Democrats had the majority of state legislatures as, soon, as, er, as recently as 2009. They started to lose it in that 2010 Armageddon midterm, and it never came back. Democrats are not focused on those state elections enough. Very quick lightning round, starting with you, Cornell Belcher. Are you concerned about Democratic turnout in 2022? Yes or no? If if we don't get justice and policing and we don't get voting rights uh, t- turned around, uh, yes, I'm very afraid yeah. that those African-Americans won't turn out. Bitter you concerned about turnout in 2022? Yeah, and I will tell you this, like the Republican Party understands how transactional the Democratic electorate is and that we're not great at credit claiming, right? So like they're going to deprive us of those victories. There is no way that the Republican Party will do anything to help or or really just, you know, not put out every stop to keep the things that Cornell wants done from getting done. Because even if the Democratic consultant class doesn't yet understand turnout, the Republican Party does. They they, really want that. And like al-Qaeda, they think long-term. Uh, Rachel Bittekoffer, Cornell Belcher, thank you very much. Up next on The Readout. Scaring is caring, y'all. A heart-wrenching and undeniable example of systemic racism. A ProPublica report uncovers it for years. A Tennessee county, get this, has been arresting and imprisoning black children as young as seven years old for a crime that does not exist. One of the reporters who broke that story joins me next. So this next story is something everyone should hear about something that should never take place. According to a scathing ProPublica report, a Tennessee county was profiting off the jailing of black children as young as seven years old for a crime that doesn't actually exist. And they've been doing it for more than a decade. Rutherford County used what they called a filter system to give jailers discretion to hold children who are arrested and sent to the juvenile detention center. It led to a 2016 incident where 11 black children were arrested for witnessing, not participating, but witnessing a fight between other children, just seeing it happen, which, by the way, is not a crime. At least six of the kids were handcuffed, four of them at their elementary school. One girl fell to her knees as she was arrested. Another threw up. Police handcuffed the youngest, an eight-year-old with pigtails. Four of the 11 kids actually spent time in jail. Overseeing all of this was the county's only juvenile court judge, Donna Davenport, who described her work as God's mission to discipline children. Somehow, she still holds the job today. Just to understand how bad it was under the judge's control, the statewide average for locking up children referred to juvenile court was 5%. In Rutherford County, it was 48%. With me now is one of the co-authors of the piece, Mariba Knight, reporter for Nashville Public Radio and host of the podcast, 
the promise. I think everyone who saw this uh, story rifle across Twitter was shocked and appalled. And so I thank you for coming and talking to us about it. Just explain to us how on earth this could happen where children are being routinely locked up by this judge. Yeah, this is a story about one county with a staggering history of detaining children. Um, Like you said, it all culminated in this mass arrest of 11 kids. It happened through a couple different mechanisms. Uh, The first part was a declaration by the judge to law enforcement that every child who was arrested, even for minor violations like truancy or running away, needed to be transferred to the juvenile detention center. So that was step one. Step two was that once they were at the juvenile detention center, this filter system, as you described, was applied to the children. And what it meant was that any child could be kept if they were deemed a true threat. That's direct quotes. True threat. However, in the manual, there was no definition for what a true threat was. So it was up to interpretation and it was up to the officer who was seeing that child before them to decide, did they think they were a true threat? And obviously that's incredibly problematic. And it seems to me that the people who are deemed a true threat were black children, especially black boys. Yeah. Well, The thing about juvenile court that is so difficult to report on is that it's all sealed, right? We don't know the records for children, but we do know that, yes, as this example showed with the 11 children, they were all black, uh, docking with lawyers who have represented children in her courtroom, like any other aspect of the criminal justice system, overwhelmingly, these are black and brown children. So there were lawsuits attached to this. Um, What were the adjudication of those lawsuits What happened with these families, particularly the families of these little kids, these little uh, girls and boys? Yes. So all 11 children sued in federal court. They all had settlements. Um, In many of those instances, there was money earmarked for counseling, which was very needed for these children. Uh, One of the young girls we outlined in the story, EJ, uh, had a few months of counseling. After this happened, she had terrible dreams. She was scared to go back to school. I mean, you can only imagine you're a child, you're scared someone's going to come in and arrest you at any point. You don't know. Um, So that was one aspect of it. The other aspect that is really important for this story is that because of this culmination of lawsuits and because a handful of them were taken by a a group of three lawyers themselves, um, over the course of a year, seven lawsuits materialize around this juvenile court and the juvenile detention center. What that does is it cracks the door open into this secretive world of juvenile court. And that's really the basis for this story that we told. We obviously found other aspects of oversight mechanisms that were completely woefully inadequate and didn't happen. But these cluster of lawsuits allowed us to look in to this world that is usually shut off from the public um, in order to protect children. And this was a money-making scheme in this county, my understanding, is they made quite a bit of money doing it. And what of this judge? How in the world is she still seated and what is becoming of her? Yeah, the money aspect of it is interesting. It is a little bit decoupled from the children at the top of the story. The fact of the matter is, is that they get $175 a day for every child outside of their own county that they detain. One of the positive things about the lawsuit that came before the federal court, one of these many lawsuits, opt that filter system. So it Uh, It really um, made them curtail who they could take into their detention facility from their own county. But what that did was kind of allowed them to shift gears and 
market themselves to other counties around Tennessee. And that was actually, yeah, yeah. So they, they started making money off of other children. So your question about the judge, judges in Tennessee are very hard to remove. Really, it's up to the voters. She is an elected official, and it is up to the voters to decide that they want another judge. One of the things that's really unique about this story, as you mentioned at the top, is that she is the only juvenile court judge that this county has ever had. So no one else has ever held this position. Vote, vote, vote. And this is why you have to vote to get rid of people like this judge. Uh, Mayor Benight, thank you so much for being here and sharing this horrific story with us. Really appreciate you. Okay, tonight's absolute worst is next. If that wasn't absolute worst enough, yet another celebrity has been spouting anti-vax rhetoric. And weirdly, the right is not telling him to shut up and sing. Hmm. We'll be right back. Celebrities have the power to sway millions of people, which is why it's so alarming when particularly the ones with huge platforms publicly spread vaccine disinformation. Rock and roll icon Eric Clapton is the latest example, making news today for donating a van and 1,000 pounds to British anti-vax group Jam for Freedom. As Rolling Stone reported today, that's just the tip of the iceberg for Clapton. He participated in one of singer Van Morrison's four anti-lockdown songs last year. And he's spoken out against the vaccine ever since he claimed he had adverse effects from it, blaming pro-vaccine propaganda. Clapton then released an anti-vax song called This Has Gotta Stop and went on a tour of Red America, where he took a picture with bounty hunter, bounty hunter Texas Governor Greg Abbott, because of course he did. Now, what really stands out about white anti-vaxxers in particular is that they act like their freedom has been taken taken from them. And they have this weird habit of trying to do that by co-opting the history of actually oppressed people. Like former SNL comedian Jim Brewer, who blamed the cancellation of his shows on segregation of forcing people to show up with vaccines and declared that, quote, I'm not going to be enslaved to the system. Yeah, because getting a free vaccine is exactly like slavery and Jim Crow. Clapton is no different. He claimed that vaccine mandates are discrimination. The lyrics of his song with Van Morrison include, do you want to be a free man or do you want to be a slave? And as Rolling Stone points out, this isn't Clapton's first nasty brush with matters of race. He used a derogatory term to describe his friend Jimi Hendrix in 1968, though the magazine points out it was, quote, hipster slang at the time. And at a concert in 1976, he went on a racist rant that included him saying, stop Britain from becoming a black colony. Keep Britain white. It was particularly shocking at the time because Clapton's music was heavily influenced, one might say appropriated, from black musicians. One of his biggest hits was a cover of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff. As musician Red Saunders wrote at the time, own up, half your music is black. You're a good musician, but where would you be without the blues and R&B? Clapton has apologized for his racist past, blaming it on his addictions to alcohol and drugs. But his behavior over the past year is also questionable. And as Rolling Stone put it, Clapton went from setting the standard for rock guitar to making full tilt racist rants and becoming an outspoken vaccine skeptic. Did he change or was he always like this? I mean, maybe he's just a jerk. So Eric Clapton, for your dangerous rhetoric on COVID precautions and vaccinations, you are tonight's absolute worst. And also Bob Marley was better. And that's tonight's readout. What am I saying? Who who is this again? Higher Heights for Women. There comes a point when the right to vote 
requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.